Bonjour, my name is Clément Horvat, a young Frenchman, history buff and author of Till Victory, the Second World War by Those Who Were There, published by Pen and Sword Books in October 2020. In this new episode of Till Victory, a podcast about World War II and peace, I'm having a conversation with Henry S. Carlyle, or Sam, a veteran of the 8th Air Force, living in Memphis, Tennessee. We'll talk about life in the UK, his work as a signalman on D-Day, seeing the concentration camps firsthand, and the unusual way the both of us met through the online auction site eBay. Bonjour, Clement. Hello, Sam. How are you? I'm fine. How about yourself? Very well. I'm very, very happy to be able to talk to you. So thank you very much for taking the time to do this. My pleasure. My pleasure. How are you doing these days? Well, I'm, I'm, I think I'm doing very well. I feel a lot better than I used to. That chemo is hell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My last treatment was in January, so I've gradually been getting better. But it had some lingering effects. I'm, I'm, a, little, I'm a little tired. Yeah. I can still do my push-ups because it doesn't take much time. But my treadmill takes too much time, and I can't do it. How old are you, Sam? Uh, 96. I was counting on 120, but when they told me that I had cancer, uh, uh, I revised it down to 115, but I'm, I'm back up to 120 now. <laughs> <laughs> Very good to hear. Um, tell us, uh, what was your job during the war? Uh, I was a radio operator, but uh, actually, uh, when you're in communications, you work in a message center And they have a, a multitude of communications. They have telephone, teletype, and radio, and uh, anything else they need to do uh, in, in, in communications. Mm. And, and you coded and deciphered messages, right? I did uh, understand cryptography. I went to a cryptography school in Washington, D.C., And uh, some uh, radio stuff was encrypted, but r encryption takes so much time to code and decode. And when you send something and you want it acted on fast, uh, uh, you don't want to code it. How did it work? Uh, it was five characters equals one letter. Mm -hmm. And like A, B, C, D, E might equal A, but every five minutes, The code changed, okay. and when you send a message out, it always had to have the time on it, and which was Greenwich time. And uh, this time, like if it was eleven ten, that 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 was the the key to it. But if it was sent at eleven fifteen, the whole keys uh, changed. Uh, every letter w was different then. You worked a lot during the uh, invasion of France, right? You were very busy at that time. D did you know oh, what was yeah. going on I, through those messages? I worked 32 hours nonstop. Uh, we got to stop and pee was about all we could stop and do. And uh, they brought us some food, and uh, it was pretty fast. And then we had a brief uh, rest. I can't remember how much, but it was. we were several days before we got back to anything like normal. Mm. It, it was very, matter of fact, we was sending out planes and sorties. You know what sorties are, don't you? No. It's not, it's non-formation. And the planes would come in and they'd be refueled and armed and they'd go back out again. Okay. And we would send them out and we would constantly getting in uh, stuff from behind the lines, uh, intelligence, and we would pass this on to the fighter command and the fighter commanders would send planes to uh, attack these particular targets. And when coding these messages, did you have an idea of what was actually going on? Oh, yeah. We, we had intelligence reports coming in constantly. Uh, they, we, I couldn't read it all. I mean, it was so much. Uh, it was, it was hard to keep up with. <laughs> uh, and it was different from what was in the newspapers, but and we were more or less sworn to secrecy. A lot of this stuff was top secret and we, we couldn't, um, divulge any of it. 
Yeah. Matter of fact, they even warned me when I was discharged not to release any of the information that it was top secret. But I couldn't remember most of it. Yeah, and and you you said that your letters uh, were censored more than your comrades because the censor thought that you were, uh, you know, disclosing very secret information. Uh, yes, some of my letters were censored as many as three times, which was very unusual. <laughs> One time was normal, but I uh, I didn't know all this was happening. But my mother passed away in 2010. And I didn't know she kept all these uh, letters in her trunk. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at them, I saw some of them had as many as three censor marks. One even had a British censor mark on it, and uh, as well as American censors. And uh, but anyway, most of them was only one censor, but some of them did have as many as three censors. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the censors was trying to find out what I knew. <laughs> <laughs> and how was your life back then before the invasion? It was fairly smooth. It wasn't fast. I mean, it was normal. I wouldn't say that it was, at times it was rushed. Mm -hmm. We had uh, combat orders, sometimes a combat order for putting like a thousand or two thousand planes in the air. One time, I think we had 45 minutes to put it in the air at zero hour, but most of the time it was an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And these uh, commands would come through from high headquarters, like, uh, well, we'll say two o'clock, and uh, we would send these things out mostly by teletype mm -hmm. and maybe 200 different addresses. Mm. And uh, we would pick up a phone and call ahead and have switchboards. It was like a spider web. We'd have a switchboard to dilute these addresses down. They may have, have 10 addresses off one switchboard. We'd call another switchboard and set it up. So when we got through on the lines, it would already be set up mm. because we had to get a receipt from each one of these addressees. And they would tear off the, the copy, the order, and give us a receipt later because we may be 10 or 15 minutes getting that receipt. Mm. And uh, th they would already be acting on it, and they would be waking up when we'd call them by the phone and tell them there's a combat order coming through. They'd call the crews, the flight crews, and they'd be up and eating before they ever got, got the message. Mm. And uh, the, the planes would be warming up. The flight crews have those planes warming up and armed and, and ready to go by the time they got in the plane. It was very hectic. But it was organized, and they flew in all kinds of weather. It didn't make any difference what it was. It was foggy, or <laughs> and it, they took off. So you were actually uh, sending um, bombers uh, over uh, Germany? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, we near the end of the war, it was as many as 2,000 planes in the air at one time. Now, oh. not all these planes were bombers, but uh, they were fighters and mm -hmm. uh, escorts and air-sea rescue and stuff like that. And they were all uh, in formation and, and had a job to do. Did you have many contacts with the, the crews? Uh, not, no, not, not personally the crews. It was only the commands. Mm. And now I did have contact with some individuals behind the lines. They, they would get messages in. I'd be half asleep and all of a sudden I'd hear my call sign and I'd wake up and they'd be calling me. And we never knew who they were. Mm. They had code names, and we had a, a Q signal. We'd call QRZ, and then we would give them a, uh, five letters, and it was a code. And they would come back with, a, with five letters answering it, okay. what it was. And what, this way, we'd know who they were. Oh. I recognized a lot of them by their uh, signature. We call it a fist, F-I-S-T. Okay. And it's sort of like handwriting. You recognize people's fist uh, when they're sending code. Okay. And it was usually very short, maybe 10 words. And uh, we, we didn't ask them to repeat it because their time was very precious. And the, the Germans were monitoring the airways anyway. They would jam it or, or try to find out the location of these people. And, they, and of course, shut them down. Actually, if I was in doubt about a particular word, like there was nine or was it ten, I would send it to them and ask for approval. And they would just say, dog a dog, if it was okay. Mm. And if it wasn't, they wouldn't. And uh, this way, I, 
they didn't have to repeat it. I repeated it. Mm. It was very interesting work. It, it was. I enjoyed it a whole lot. I, actually, when I went into the service, um, I volunteered. Mm-hmm. If, if they were drafting a lot of men, but if you volunteered, you got to choose what you wanted as long as you could pass the aptitude test. And I passed my aptitude test, and they gave me my, my choice of, of the Air Corps or the uh, Signal Corps. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I took the Signal Corps, but I, even though I got my training in the Signal Corps, I was transferred to the Air Corps. Mm. I, I was always attached to the Air Corps, even when I was in the Signal Corps. And my work was always with them. And they, they offered me officer candidate school, but... I couldn't see. I, I felt like I was a better radio operator than I would ever be as an officer. I couldn't see an eighteen-year-old kid being an officer, and I, I turned that down. I I had a pretty good IQ. I had a hundred and seventeen IQ, which was pretty good. Okay. And uh, but I I I figured I was a better, better radio operator. I, I was a ham operator. A ham was a amateur radio operator, mm-hmm. and. I, I, that's what I did in school. I, I was uh, associated with a lot of other kids. It was uh, it, we had a group that was we were all hams, and we hung out together and and uh, did radio work. And that was the last couple of years of my schooling, and uh, that's what I did in my spare time. Okay, and I enjoyed that. That's where I learned my code, and all. And uh, I was transferred a lot. I don't know whether that was good or or they were trying to get rid of me, but yeah. I had over 30 addresses overseas, and uh, most of them was just for a couple of weeks. Well, I was in what they call a complement squadron. If they had somebody off sick or in the hospital for various reasons, injured, uh, they would send me, I would replace them till they got this person back, mm-hmm. and then I would go back to my home base. And I might only be there a short while, and I'd go somewhere else. That's why when people ask me, where was I stationed, it's difficult to say. I moved so much. Yeah, but but you spent most of your time in England, about two years? Uh, I got over there in June 43, Mm -hmm. and I left in June 45 and went to France and Germany. Mm. I spent about six months in Germany. And and what did you do during your your free time in England? Because there was the blackout and the rationing and everything. How was how was life? Oh, I I had a regular job. I I went to work every day. Uh, I, I was on a rotating shift, mm-hmm. and I worked around the clock. But uh, I I worked eight hours on and sixteen off mm. uh, every day. And if I wanted to get off more than eight, uh, more than that, we would double up, and I would work the opposite shifts. And then I, when I would take off, and maybe for a couple of days, and go somewhere, somebody else would work my shift, and I would do the same for them. Mm. Now, some of these jobs I had, it would be like uh, some of the stations. I'd be the only person working there, just one person, and the other ones would be like twelve people working there. It was. Uh, it depended on the command. It was very organized, though. And sometimes I worked with the British. Mm-hmm. I, I was uh, the first base I went to with a combination of RAF and uh, American. How did you get along with the British? Oh, I had a, a very good relationship with them. Matter of fact, I had very good friends. And uh, my last one died in 2018, November uh-huh. 2018, and of all those years. Mm-hmm. Actually, I didn't know her during the war, but she married a pilot that I knew, and I got to know her. And uh, but all my friends have died off over there. Now I, I have a lot of association with them uh, still through my letters, but uh, the friends that I made during the war are all gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I enjoyed them. They it was a. a They they were good. They were very good. The hospital um, they they tolerated us because we we were pretty rude compared to their uh, reserved attitudes. Mm. I, I met a lot of girls and uh, I communicated with uh, one even after the war. And um, I, I looked one of them up in 2017. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do this while my wife was alive and uh, out of respect to her. Mm. But in 2017, I thought, well, my wife passed away in 2015, 
in 2017, I said, well, I'll see if I can find some of my old flames. <laughs> and sure enough, I found one of them in 2017. And uh, she had passed away in 2012, though. She had three daughters, and she was a very successful seamstress. And she, uh, matter of fact, she worked on them, uh, Parisian fashions, ladies' fashions, and she did very good. I, I missed her. We we dated for a couple of years. Matter of fact, it was a very long relationship I had with her. And the way I met her, I was going only furlough I ever had in England, and uh, I was going to Scotland, Edinburgh, and uh, this this girl was on the platform in um, London waiting for the train. And I said, boy, she's good looking. I was telling this, this soldier alongside of me, I said, I, I'm going to meet her. And so whenever the train came in, I rushed over and grabbed her suitcase and picked it up. And I said, let me help you with that. <laughs> and so I, that suitcase and put it on the train. And uh, so she was very grateful. But there was no seats available. And we had to stand on the, on the train for several hours. And finally, I talked. She was very reserved, and, and as, as typical British. And uh, finally, I said, I sat down on the suitcase, and, and I finally talked her into sitting down on my lap. And uh, later on, the the train was getting emptied out a little bit, and we got a seat in a compartment. Mm. And uh, so I went to sleep on her shoulder, and after my head fell over on, on her lap. And, and she, I, when I woke up, she was telling these other passengers, she says, she didn't know me. <laughs> she, was, she was very embarrassed that I was doing this. <laughs> and uh, But anyway... I asked her to marry me, as a matter of fact, <laughs> and but and she wouldn't give me an answer. And uh, about four years later, she did give me an answer, but the answer was qualified. I had to move to England <laughs> mm. to get married <laughs> because she wouldn't come here, and uh, so we couldn't uh, agree on that. And so we didn't it didn't go anywhere. But at that time, the U.S. State Department was hiring ex-military people at these foreign jobs. I could have got a job in the UK and uh, and been very, you know, got along pretty good, I think, but I didn't. Didn't you like uh, life in England? Uh, yeah, England, it, it, it was, to me, their uh, living was, uh, I won't say lower than ours, but it was behind the times. Mm. We felt like that they was several years behind the U.S. Mm. because we were more modern than they were. But we, it was, it was very hard to judge. The food and everything was horrible, mm -hmm. to be honest. We ate Brussels sprouts and Spam. Spam is still outlawed in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, uh, The people were nice. The yeah. people were very, very nice. I can't complain about that. But the 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 country was just sort of backward compared to the U.S. It wasn't as modern. Yeah. Now I don't think that's true today, but I think it was then. It was also a very dangerous place with all the rockets and everything. You got a close call uh, during a German raid in England. Uh, can you tell us what happened? Oh yeah, I was in a, a air raid. We were in a convoy. And um, we we were getting uh, strafed, and I jumped out of the back of a truck and uh, landed on a big boulder about the size of a basketball and, and broke my right ankle. And uh, I couldn't move. I was laying in, uh, alongside the the truck, and it, it was it was the raid was going pretty heavy, and it was a big fellow comrade came back and got me he must have weighed 250 pounds but he picked me up and ran with me like a baby <laughs> and he probably saved my life and but i was in the hospital a week and um i would have probably been there longer but they said we need you <laughs> and mm. they sent me back to work with a cast on my foot i was never wounded but i i did have that uh, broken ankle I worked with a, a cast on my leg for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> after England, you, you went to France. Um, it was after after VE Day, but um, Clement, yeah. actually, what happened when I left England? I went into Germany, came back to France, went back into Germany. Yeah. I was in and out. I got transferred so much. Yeah. What day I went in or at all is hard to say because yeah. I moved backwards and forth so much. 
But did you see what and, was left of the battlefields? Uh, yeah, I was around uh, closer to Reims and Strasbourg. Mm-hmm. I was never on the uh, uh, close to the coast, mm-hmm. except when I came home. And then when I came home, it took three days to get from Munich to uh, San Quentin, France. San Quentin's probably close to where you are, isn't it? Uh, it's about four hours from where I live. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, anyway... It took me three days by train to get from Munich to mm. uh, San Quentin, and then I stayed there for about six weeks. Oh, and it was cold and muddy. It mm. was a potato field. <laughs> we lived in tents, yeah. and the French government was very nice to us. Every Friday, they put a bottle of wine on our cot, <laughs> and they they also paid uh, they added seventeen dollars and fifty cents to my paycheck every month. A lot of people don't know that, but they they were very nice to us. And the civilians? Did you talk to a lot of French civilians or German civilians even? Uh, actually, I, I met very few. Uh, I mean, I, it was uh, what few I met was short-lived. I mean, I never met any for a long term. Uh, it was usually just, you know, in the evening. I'd go into a, a bar mm-hmm. in um, France, and we'd, we'd have a few drinks, and I met them, and that was about it. I never met any long-term uh, relationship, not not like it was in England, because I didn't stay in one place uh, long enough, uh, it seemed yeah. like, and it just wasn't, it, everything was temporary. And, and did you notice any uh, destruction uh, in Europe when you were there? Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, it, it was it was really pathetic, it was, it was pitiful, mm-hmm. yes, I, I did, I saw it, it was bad in England, France, Germany, Some places much worse than others. Yes, it was very, very uh, devastated. Some places it was, looked like it was just ruins. Mm. It, it was uh, bad. And uh, the uh, Germans, they were they were smart. They were very industrious. They took the debris mm-hmm. and piled it up and made an airage shelter out of it. They would put that that broken concrete on top of an air raid shelter and made it bombproof almost. Wow. They, they were shrewd. They were, they, they were good soldiers, mm. very good soldiers. And they were very respectful of us. Oh yeah. They, they're taught, they're taught that they, they respect military very, very much, but the civilian German civilians, Uh, I had no grudge against them. They they were good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just when they voted Hitler into power, they were hungry. They were in a deep depression, and they voted him in, and then he took over and ruined the country. And uh, he, and what he did to the Jews is horrible. Mm-hmm. But uh, the people, I think they they didn't they didn't know what was going on until it was too late. Yeah, but. Now, now the uh, Nazi Party—they were horrible. Mm. What they did was unforgivable. Of course, they—I went to the, the concentration camp, and I had troubles with that. I had nightmares for a couple of years after the war, and that, that was probably the worst scene that I ever saw. Do you mind talking to us about it? No, I don't. I don't mind talking about it. It was—it um, was an inmate there. He must have lived close by. It only been liberated a very short time when I went there, and I don't know why, but I went into the town, and it had, it had housed as many as thirty thousand people. Mm-hmm. And uh, this inmate showed me through there, and he showed me the gas chamber where it was uh, in. Um, Dutch, I think, is what is the German word for shower. It was printed over the top of the uh, the, the doorway into the shower room, and it had jets in there. But but these weren't water jets; they were gas jets. And then they would take these people. They'd make them undress before they'd go in there because they said they had to sanitize their clothes, and they was going to shower them. And so when they'd go in there and and um, they close the door. There was a little small glass window about oh, two feet square down close to the bottom. And they would look through that window and see when they were on the floor. And then they'd turn the gas jets off. Mm-hmm. And then they'd take these bodies 
and stacked them in a room next to it. It was a white plaster room. And they'd stack these bodies in there like cordwood. And they would probably stack them up six feet high. And you, and on these white plastered walls, you, I'd see bloody handprints all over them. And it, uh, it was blood all over the place. And next to the, then after they, they would start burning these bodies, they had um, some, oh, I think that I saw two furnaces, mm-hmm. gas furnaces, and they were like wheelbarrows and um, with a sort of a, a trough. And they would, they, they made Jews do this. If, they, if the Jews didn't do it, they'd kill them. Mm-hmm. And so they was under penalty of death if they didn't uh, do this. But they would put these bodies on these things and take this wheelbarrow and run them into the furnace. And uh, they'd burn them as fast as they could. And uh, they, alongside these furnaces was a barrel. And it had, apparently, they had taken bone dust mm-hmm. and uh, it had been ground up and made a sort of a flour out of it. And they took the, this dust and made it into a biscuit-like. And um, they had a number imprinted on it. It was embossed, like it was stamped in there, uh, molded. I never I didn't think to look and see if they all had the same number or not. But... Uh, uh, I got one of them for a souvenir. I gave it to a Jewish friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And this uh, biscuit, they sent it to an interested party uh, that had a friend there that they burned as, as a memento. They sent it to them for a fee. And, and that's how they thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so, but anyway, this, this man, he probably weighed 80 pounds. I could see every bone in his body. Mm. And he didn't didn't have a shirt on. He just had pants. And I could see his, his whole torso. It, it, it was sickening just to almost see him. Mm. And these people, uh, many times they didn't feed them. They, they worked them in the fields. And the only way that they got food was to eat a carrot or uh, onion or whatever they could find in the field where they was cultivating it. And that was the way they got their food. Now, they did feed them, but not all the time. Mm. And so that's where they lived. If they got too weak, they just gassed them. Mm. And, it, it was, and now this was a Nazi party. And they, these people that, that run these concentration camps, they, were, they must have been horrible people. Mm. They, they, it was bad. Real bad. Yeah. What what do you say to you know people who say that it never happened? Uh, <laughs> it must be well, terrible to you. It must be. Uh... No, I, I just think they, they they didn't know. Of course, a lot of the, the Germans were very secretive. They didn't advertise these things. I don't think a lot of people knew what was going on. Mm. Uh, I, I really don't. I don't think they knew everything was going on, mm. and, uh, and they just had to see it. If, believe it. I saw it. I know it happened. Mm. And I know some people deny it to this day, but it's not true. Mm. And um, it, it it happened. Matter of fact, this Jewish friend of mine, she she married a, a schoolmate of my son's. Mm-hmm. And I happened to know her. And her grandmother, uh, she brought her over here, and she was in a nursing home here. And uh, she had a number on her arm. Yeah. And uh, did you know that the German government sent these survivors of the concentration camp? They sent them a check every month. New German government. Mm-hmm. So the, the German government has changed. They're not the same people they were back then. So you really don't hold any grudge against the Germans? No, I don't. Uh, I really don't. I think, you know, it's, it's sort of like... Um, England, you know, England was our enemy in 1776, yeah. but mm. uh, we're we're good friends now. Yeah. I mean, the, the government and the people, you have to separate them, I think, Clement. Mm. The, the government is not the same as the people. Yeah. And uh, I know the people are, are the government, but <laughs> things change. And I don't, I have no animosities toward the Germans. Okay. I, I think they are good people. And I think they're very industrious. Mm. And uh, I think they made a big mistake by letting Hitler get in there. 
Mm-hmm. It was bad. But uh, I suppose we've all made mistakes there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know we are indebted to France. Uh, uh, your, your Marquis Lafayette uh, mm-hmm. and the Statue of Liberty, uh, I, <laughs> I think that's two of the greatest assets that we can ever contribute to France. That you, you, France is a good ally. We're good friends. I think we always will be. I hope so. Yeah. Do you remember VE Day? I do. I was sleeping, yeah. and it happened about two o'clock in the morning. And we had the loudspeaker system to come on and told us the treaty had just been signed and the war had ended. And that was about two o'clock in the morning. And I, I just rolled over in my bed and went back to sleep. <laughs> But later on, I, yeah, I did go to London. And I, And uh, I didn't get to go to Paris then. I went to Paris later on. Uh, Paris, I, I love Paris. And uh, I'll tell you a little trick. When I was stationed at San Quentin, mm-hmm. uh, my ship wasn't going to come in for a while. So I decided I'd go to Paris for a day or two. There wasn't any traffic on the road. And I had to get on. Well, to start walking. And any military vehicle would stop and give you a lift, uh, a ride. And because uh, there, there was almost no civilian cars on the road, mm-hmm. uh, doctors and politicians are about the only people who had a car. And uh, I was going along the road, and this car stopped for me. And it was it had a chauffeur in it, and there was a French official in there. He was in a uniform, and I don't know what his rank was, but he must have been very high up to mm-hmm. have a chauffeur. And uh, but he spoke very good English, and uh, he, he gave me a ride all the way to Paris, and we had a very good conversation. And he told me the French government was going to have a hard time rebuilding the country, yeah. which was to be expected. And sure enough, they did. I think they had about five different governments immediately after the war. Mm-hmm. But he gave me a ride, and I offered him American cigarettes, and oh, he was delighted with that. And I asked him if I could give his chauffeur one, and he said, sure. So he said something in French to the chauffeur, the chauffeur turned around, I offered him one, and uh, he he didn't light it right then. And uh, so we, we had a very good conversation all the way into Paris. <laughs> and that, um, I, I wish I knew more about him, but I, that's all I know. But I went into Paris, and everybody was happy. And very, very happy. Oh, let me tell you, <laughs> when I was in Germany, yeah. uh, I went into Augsburg, and I was just bored, and I w- walked into, it was about five miles of Augsburg from my base, mm-hmm. and this girl was on top of a, a pile of rubble, and she was just scrounging, you know, trying to salvage anything she could find. Yeah. And she had some sort of kitchen utensil, and she wanted me to straighten the handle out on it. Well, I tried. I think I may have straightened it a little bit. But anyway, I asked her if there was a beer garden around. And, and now, I, I had trouble with the language. I asked her something in German, and she was quick to tell me in German that she was not German. She was a DP, a displaced person. She was from one of the Balkan countries. Okay. But uh, anyway, we had a language barrier, but we went, finally we went in and we had a beer together. And after a short while, she wanted me to walk her back to her quarters. And I was I was a little skeptical because this is just after the war and there was a lot of rogue soldiers still around. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was a little, little bit cautious and I was skeptical. But then I, anyway, she said it was about a quarter of a mile and I walked her back to her quarters. And it was, I think it was an old school building. And uh, she wanted me to walk her up the door. Oh, I didn't want to. And she walked up by herself and opened the door and called something out. And a couple of the girls came to the door. And uh, so they wanted to greet me. And, and I went on up to the door. And and then a few minutes, about 200 girls came to the door. They were all girls. And they all wanted to kiss me. <laughs> <laughs> and but well, anyway, I, I spent quite a bit of time there. And then I, I had to go because it was getting close to dark. But she didn't want me to go. She she said it was, you know, it was getting close to dark. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... And five miles back in the dark wasn't any fun. 
And so I said, well, where would I sleep? And so she said, right here. You know, she showed me the bunk. And and I asked her where she slept. Same bunk, <laughs> and we were both sleep in that same bunk. And this bunk was only about twenty seven inches wide. <laughs> you know, it was very narrow. And she wanted me to spend the night in her bunk, and she was going to sleep in it too. <laughs> but but let me tell you, she didn't have anything in mind other than sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> Because I did spend the night there, and the next morning I had left even before breakfast. I mean, I don't know what they had for breakfast, but I left, and I had to get on back to base. <laughs> but anyway, that was very unusual, I thought. These girls, they were slave labor from these Balkan countries. They made uniforms and things like that for the soldiers, repaired them, and they did a lot of sewing for them. They, they must have been very happy to be uh, liberated. Oh. They were very happy, and yeah. but these girls—it reminded me of the French. I think every French girl wanted to kiss an American soldier. They—they yeah. <laughs> they were very, very appreciative of being liberated. Yeah, uh, it was horrible on uh, being a, a country under the Nazi rule, mm. and I think it was uh, wonderful though that Paris was an open city and and they didn't ruin it. <laughs> you you didn't come uh, home immediately after the war, um, and and judging by one of your letters, you were pretty annoyed with the point system. Uh, yes, they had a point system. They gave us uh, one point for each month that was in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and in the service, and then overseas we got two points for each month we were in the service. Mm -hmm. And I think they gave if you wounded, you got an extra point for that or something. But I had I had very high points. I was second highest on my base. Uh, with I had eighty seven points, I believe, mm -hmm. and I I was afraid to go anywhere because I I knew if 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 I missed it, I, I had to wait for the next um, roster to come in that'd be called up again. Mm -hmm. And um, when I got on the train, like I say, it took three days on these um, box cars have in the U.S. They were nicknamed 40s and 8s mm -hmm. uh, by the soldiers in World War One, And that meant 40 men or eight horses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I believe we, we all could not sleep at the same time. We yeah. had all of our luggage, baggage and everything. Anything we wanted to um, bring home, we had to carry it. Mm -hmm. We could bring home anything we wanted, but we had to carry it. We could bring on 10 rifles who wanted to, but we had to carry them. <laughs> and, uh, but they don't let us bring one handgun home. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was on this train. I think the engineer, every time he saw him, uh, he was making about three miles an hour. It, didn't, it was very, very slow. Yeah. And every time he saw somebody, I think he stopped. And um, every Frenchman in the country, I don't believe, we didn't see anybody till it stopped. When it stopped, the whole neighborhood came out, and they wanted to buy anything we had. Anything <laughs> we had, they wanted to buy. Of course, money wouldn't buy anything. Yeah. It wasn't anything to buy. <laughs> and, uh, but we, we, we didn't have anything to really to sell. But the reason it took so long, I think they had to go around and many of the bridges were bombed out and we they had to make detours to make it around to San Quentin. Well, anyway, it was cold and there was a, a train going into Germany that had coals. There was a lot of coal cars, and but they had soldiers on top of each one of them guarding the coal, keeping them stealing the coal. And But it was okay for us to get up there. We threw a lot of the coal off on the ground and we had liberated a Ten barrel from a railroad station. We put it in there. We was gonna build a fire in this barrel, and uh, and we used this coal. And we we had a good fire going. Only thing is, it caught the floor of the train on fire, <laughs> and we had to put it out. Well, we was we was rationed to one quart of water a day, and we couldn't afford to, to spill our water on this fire to put it out. So we had to pee on it to put it out. <laughs> And you're talking about a smell. Oh, man, it smelled of the place. <laughs> and then we'd go through these tunnels, and there was a lot of tunnels down in these Alps, Bavarian Alps. 
<laughs> and and I, the smoke was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> I, I know I won't forget this. <laughs> and uh, so, but anyway, we we had a pretty good time uh, hauling, getting back to San Quentin. We finally got there, and some of the fellows had so much luggage they finally abandoned it because it was just too much to carry. Mm. It was so too heavy. But I still have my my P thirty eight pistol that I brought back. Oh. And um, I, I brought a camera back too, but I I disposed of it because it was an antique. It, it soon became outdated. But I I love my P thirty eight, and it shoots good. And how and, was it to uh, to go home? How, how did you feel, Clement? I, I tried to go to college. Yeah, and um, I was much older than the uh, classmates there, and I felt out of place. Yeah, and uh, I had a little time getting my feet on the ground. I, I just, I was sort of uh, disoriented. I don't know if that's the right word for it or not, but I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. VA helped me. That's the Veterans Administration. Mm -hmm. um, they they helped me. They gave me some aptitude tests, and I went to school. I did some schooling, and. Um, I tried to get an education because I, I I knew I needed ed education to do anything, and um, I just felt out of place. I, I didn't I didn't fit in, and uh, but I changed jobs about five times I think, and but each time I did better myself, mm. and um, and I finally met this girl. We got married after six, only six weeks. Mm -hmm. That. Um, Is all, and I stayed married for 68 years. That's beautiful. She passed away in 2015, and um, she was the love of my life. I really miss her. Yeah. It, it took me a while to get my feet on the ground, and uh, like I say, I had nightmares for a while. Yeah. They call it. They got a lot of different names for that, but uh, I, I got now. through it, and, and uh, I'm I'm okay now. I have no. I have no regrets. I have no nothing. Um, I mean, I have no animosities. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like that uh, I did a good job, and I, I was, I tried to. And I'm a very patriotic person. Yeah, I love my country. I, I love good people, mm -hmm. and I don't have many friends, but I, the people I have, I, I, I love them. Of and. Uh, It took me a while to adjust. Mm. Did you work in the communications after the war? Uh, well, I was wanted to get out of it because it was. Uh, it's, I said, "Man, I'm tired of this. I want something different." And I tried something else, and I. Uh, but everything was sort of an office job, and pushing a pencil, and it, they didn't pay too much for that. Yeah. Well, I said, "Well, I'm have to go back to radio because it it was more skilled and." And uh, sure enough, I said, well, I want to get on the technical end of it, though. And so I did. I studied a little bit on the radio, and I, but I wasn't getting anywhere. Mm. And I finally landed a job. And they, they hired me, but they said, uh, you, uh, you have to get your a government license within six six months mm. or, you, or you're out the door. Mm. We, we we won't keep you if you don't get a license because you have to have a government license to do commercial radio work mm. like broadcast stations and TV stations, stuff like that. So I got, I got a license in three months mm. and I kept the job for 32 years okay. and I became a crew chief and I, I did a very good job. I, I actually, I hated to quit, but I said well, uh, that I could retire at uh, 80% of my salary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that was pretty good. I could get a little bit more if I wanted to work another two and a half years. So, so uh, the wife and I needed to get out and travel. And I was only 58 years old. Mm. I retired 58 years is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so the wife and I, we traveled for about 20 years and we enjoyed things. We we wintered a lot down in the Mexican border. I wouldn't do that now, but we did then. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we had a good time. And we had two kids and uh, put them both through college, both of them with master's degree. Mm -hmm. One of them was an architect, and he did very well. The other was a financial analyst. He mm -hmm. did well, too. We had a very successful life. I think that uh, I wish I had more education. My parents weren't very well educated. 
Yeah. My dad was a sharecropper. I know you, you probably don't know what a sharecropper is, do you? No. Okay. It works for a, a land, a, usually a larger landowner. And um, when he sells his share, his crops, he divides what he gets from the share from the crops uh-huh. with a landowner. And okay. that's the way he pays for his rent. Mm-hmm. And they call them sharecroppers. Okay. Well, well, my dad was a sharecropper. It's a very poor job. <laughs> it's yeah. very poor. But my dad only had a fourth grade education. My mother didn't have much more. And uh, and so they they weren't able to really give me the guidance that I needed. But it wasn't. That was things were tough back then. Mm. And uh, very tough. And I was brought up in the Depression days here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it was as bad as it was then. But my dad, he struggled. Mm-hmm. And he had a job that didn't it didn't pay much. Mm-hmm. But uh, we we made it. And I, I felt I figured those kids had to get an education so they were going to be successful, mm-hmm. and they did. And my son, number two son, he lives in Memphis. And he's a bachelor, always has been. Mm. And uh, but he comes out and, and usually brings me some home cooking every weekend. And he's got two dogs, and he likes to run his dogs in my big backyard. Yeah. And uh, we, but I, it's, I live alone here, just with Katie B and myself. Yeah, and uh, it's lonely. It's very lonesome. Yeah, and. Of but but you you met a lot of people recently because I met you in very weird uh, circumstances um, on eBay. Uh, I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time there for my personal uh, World War II collection. But, but but this was the first time ever that I saw a veteran selling his own stuff. You know, why did you do that? Uh, because you you want to forget, or because you want people to uh, remember you through those letters and souvenirs that you you sell on eBay? Well. Uh, th- those letters, like I say, I am lonely and I do welcome conversation. Yeah. And most of the people that were buy these letters, I sold these letters very, very reasonable. Mm-hmm. And I, I really didn't make any money off of it. I didn't, I really don't need the money. Yeah. yeah. But I, I know uh, that there were some school teachers that used some of your letters, um, in school projects and and you know i met you through that so that's why you're in my book so i understand that it's because you want people uh, to remember you through those some of these uh, school teachers they they bought my letters they uh, were very interested in the letters and they usually had questions yeah. to to follow up in the letters because the letters weren't detailed mm-hmm. like i say my my parents weren't very well educated and i had the right the letters in very simplistic terms mm-hmm. and but these teachers they would write letter uh, write questions to me and uh, i would always respond and mm-hmm. i still uh, get letters from a lot of them that's bought letters a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and some of them are historians and some are one's a museum curator mm-hmm. and some of them are writers um, mm-hmm. and there's another one in calgary canada She wants me to come up and visit her, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's a skydiving instructor. She wants me to go skydiving with her. It's <laughs> 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 in a World War II plane. <laughs> I, I, the, the idea sounded pretty good because she said World War II plane, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I don't think I want that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, one teacher out in Washington State makes a test out of the letters. Okay. And he has the, the students to act out the, the contents of the letter. Mm-hmm. And another one makes a test out of the, the letters. I get good correspondence from many of them. And some of them write me letters even and, and send me questions. And they're all ages. Believe mm-hmm. it or not, I have one that's only 11 years old. Okay. And other ones are up in the 70s and 80s and um, but they're all ages and they all of them are very cordial very nice mm. and they can't believe that they're communicating with somebody as old as I am <laughs> <laughs> but you know I feel very blessed being uh, uh, as uh, mentally alert and physically active as I am yeah I'm just lucky my mother lived to be 103 Wow. And I, I just have good genes, yeah. and good French wine, 
And that's John, the John mustard. I've had it alter my menu a little bit. I put it on some croutons and drink some wine. It's, 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 it's not too bad. It's a wonderful life. Yeah, it is. Any anecdote you'd like to share to conclude this interview? I was in, um, uh, when I was in the States, I was the only Southern boy in a Northern outfit. And, um, up in uh, Gowan Field, Boise, Idaho. And, um, they call me Rebel. Because, <laughs> you know, back in the early days when the war between the states, mm-hmm. they called the Southerners rebels. Yeah. And they, they called me Rebel. And they could identify me because guys that was enlisted in the South, our fatigues were blue jeans. Mm-hmm. And in the North, they were green. I don't know why this was, but that was the way it was. So I had blue jeans, and I was the only person in the outfit that had blue jeans. Mm-hmm. And I, they called me Rebel, and I stood out like a sore thumb. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for your time. It was very, very nice to talk to you. I want to thank you, really, for everything you've done and for our freedom. You know, we are eternally grateful for what you did. Clement, I, I think it's been an honor to be, have such great allies as we have. Mm. The, the French, I think, are 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 good. They're, they're they're very very good. I wish we didn't have the language problem that we have, but uh, English is tough. But we we enjoy the great allies as you folks are. You're you're wonderful people. Thank you. And uh, if you got in trouble again over there, we would be by your side. Thank you very much. And really, we, we will never forget what you did for us. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. What a nice man and what a life. The French can read some of Sam's wartime letters in the tome 2 of Till Victory, which is for now only available in France, but you'll find more than 50 different stories of Allied soldiers, along with the letters they wrote during the war in Till Victory, the Second World War, by those who were there, available everywhere in the world very soon. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, there are a lot of great episodes coming and you don't want to miss them. Make those stories known, share them around and hit the like button on whatever you're listening to them on. All the links for the book and social media are on tillvictory.com and I appreciate all your messages. Till next time, thank you for listening.